This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 18. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, Present at the Creation of the Atomic Bomb, during World War II, the U.S. military and a team of scientists undertook a top-secret effort called the Manhattan Project to unleash the power of the atom in the form of a weapon vastly more powerful than anything the world had ever seen. To write the history of the project, the Army hired the New York Times' star science reporter and swore him to secrecy. As reporter Mark Wolverton writes in Undark this month, that arrangement set off ethical reverberations that are echoing to this day. Mark Wolverton joins us now, along with a special guest, Seth Mnookin, our commentator on science and the media. Mark and Seth, welcome. Hi, Dave. Thank you. Well, first of all, Mark, tell us about the New York Times reporter, William L. Lawrence. Who was he, and when and how did he get this assignment? Well, William Lawrence was actually the first full-time science reporter in the United States. He started working at the New York Times in 1930, and he covered most of the big science stories of the day through the 30s. Uh, And one of the things that he was interested in was the nuclear research that was becoming uh, very very, uh, prominent at that time. Um, He was one of the first people to really talk about the discovery of nuclear fission. Um, He covered it in a... uh, piece in the New York Times in May 5th, 1940, in which he really laid out um, the recent uh, discoveries in that. And and also, in, it was in that story where he first um, discussed the possibility of Hitler getting the bomb, which became sort of an obsession of his. And he was following the other developments in the atomic story for the uh, the beginning of the, of the World War I, World War II. Um, and somewhere along the line, he kind of attracted the attention of the government and the head of the military head of the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves, who in spring 1945 decided that he needed a historian for the Manhattan Project. And he tapped uh, William Lawrence to fulfill this role. Lawrence himself turns out to be quite an elusive character. What was he like? He, he was really a very, a very... Um, yeah, a very interesting character, a sort of a um, a classic immigrant self-made man story. He was actually born in Lithuania in 1888. Um, he came to the United States in 1905 with 50 cents in his pocket to Ellis Island. Um, uh, he ended up, he, he became a citizen. He served He served in the United States Army in World War I. Um, he, he attended Harvard off and on. He did tutoring at Harvard eventually earned a law degree there. Um, and somewhere along the line, he, um, he, he actually fell into journalism. It was not really, he, he got, after a law degree, he actually um, was going to become a lawyer and decided that he then didn't want to help rich men cheat the government, as he, as he put it, when he saw the jobs that were available. Um, and he was actually at a party in, I think, 1926, and he was tr- trying to chat up Ethel Barrymore at the time. And kind of, uh, there was also a game, a, a trivia game going on in the party for some reason. And the people would come over and ask him these trivia questions, and he'd, and he'd sort of answer dismissively and, you know, just go away. I'm trying to chat up Ethel Barrymore. And he ended up winning the game. 
um, which beating the reigning champion at the time, which is a guy named Herbert Bayard Swope, who was the editor of the New York World newspaper at that time. Swope was so impressed that he had been displaced as the champion of this game that he thought, who is this William Lawrence guy? And ended up offering a, him a job with, with the paper as a, as a reporter. And that's where Lawrence started his journalistic career. And he worked until 1930 when he went, when he went to the Times. So uh, how did you get interested in Lawrence? Well, I've always been interested in atomic history, nuclear history, the history of the Manhattan Project. So, of course, that, that led to my writing a book about Robert Oppenheimer and other, and other things. But William Lawrence is kind of this shadowy figure through all the histories of the Manhattan Project. If you look at all the, the histories and the books that have been written about it, such as Richard Rhodes' Making of the Atomic Bomb and, and many of the others, Lawrence is this kind of figure on the sidelines. He's mentioned uh, being there at the first atomic bomb test, the Trinity test in July 1945, flying on the Nagasaki mission as the only journalist to go on that. But he's not really, he was never really described in much detail after that. And it got me thinking, well, who was this guy and how did he get this job? How did he become the only reporter allowed this kind of exclusive access and how did he get it? So I started looking into that a bit more and that kind of, as I did that, I just discovered what, a, what an interesting and varied figure he was and both before the war and after the war. You write that he died in uh, 1977, uh, left no children, uh, and uh, very few people are still uh, around who knew him. How did you go about reporting this story? Yeah, that, that was that was quite a challenge. I mean, usually with most stories, you can go interview people or or you find archives. And for, for a writer, I, I would think he would have left a lot of papers and letters and correspondence behind, but I've never been able to find anything. Um, I mentioned in the story, the only person I located who actually knew him was Arthur Gelb of, of the New York Times. The main source of him that I, that I really use were, were other um, material that had been written about him. Um, and in, he, he ended up doing, in the late 1950s and early 60s after he retired from the Times, he did an oral, a very lengthy oral history uh, interview with Columbia University. It's about 500 pages long in, in its transcript. Um, it's very detailed. It's, um, it tells the story of his entire life from his, his childhood in Lithuania up until that to the present time at that then. But Lawrence was someone who had a, and you can see this in his work too, in his written work, he was someone who had a, a tendency to be polite, exaggerate. You know, he, he, would, he, he had a very kind of purple prose style, um, and that was kind of also evident when he's telling his own history and to the point where it's sometimes unclear how much he's saying is actual, was actual truth and how much was actual, a little bit of embellishment for, for personal reasons. So yeah, it, w it was definitely a challenge. And it's kind of, in some cases, it was sort of reading between the lines as to what he was thinking and what, um, and what, what his motivations were, which, which made it even more, which makes him even more of, a, of an enigmatic figure. They called him Atomic Bill Lawrence, apparently, to uh, differentiate him from another William Lawrence who uh, wrote about politics for the Times. Uh, Seth Mnookin, I want to bring you into the conversation. You have actually written a book about the New York Times. Uh, did you know about Atomic Bill Lawrence? 
I had heard of him, but I actually did not know and and had not read about his whole backstory. In my book, there's a section where I sort of give a very quick cliff notes of the times from the 19th century up until kind of 2001. Um, and so I knew uh, a little bit about him and knew that he had been one of the only journalists, uh, if not the only journalist, at a lot of instances regarding the creation development of, of the atomic bomb, but did not know uh, sort of any of his backstory and had also not realized that he had been uh, hired by the army to, to to chronicle the Manhattan Project. So uh, just to, just to recap, that is what uh, Mark's article in Undark is all about, uh, Lawrence's role uh, in covering the uh, creation of the atomic bomb and then uh, and then following it uh, in its uh, during the during the Cold War uh, as well. Uh, the story is uh, called Atomic Bill and the Birth of the Bomb. Seth. Can you imagine a reporter or a news organization agreeing to the terms that Lawrence agreed to? He was hired by the War Department to uh, to cover the Manhattan Project, but he couldn't uh, while it, while he was in their employ, he couldn't write about it for the New York Times. Can you imagine something like that uh, happening today? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things that are really interesting about this. Um, one is that there seems to be some ambiguity as to whether. He was, according to, to Mark's piece, it, 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 some ambiguity as to whether he was being paid by the Times uh, or paid by the War Department during this period. That, and, and it was a period during which he was not writing for the Times. Um, and, and the work that he was doing was ultimately for this history that was not going to be published in the Times, although obviously all of that information was was going to inform his later work. Uh, and he did go back and continue to write about atomic energy and the atomic bomb for the Times. What I think is, is, is kind of it probably raises questions the most for people today is the fact that he returned to the Times to then write about the same topic and subject that he had been paid to cover by those sources that that he was covering. Um, that's the type of thing that would, I think, raise clear alarm bells as a perceived, if not an actual, conflict of interest. I was trying to think of an analogous situation today, and you do have scenarios where, you know, you have someone like George Stephanopoulos, who was a political consultant and now in his role as a television journalist does cover politics. But it's hard to imagine a journalist then being hired and then from by 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 some other political entity and then coming back to that same news organization and and covering the exact topic that he had been hired to write about separately on the flip side though i think that we would really have lost a lot had it not been for his access as uh, as as mark highlights a lot of what we know about those years about early atomic tests come from come from Lawrence. And so it in, in a very elegant way, I think it highlights conflict uh, and attention that reporters always go through. It's more stark here because you have the added financial issue. But you know the the, the question of to what extent do you need to sort of play nice with your sources to continue to get information? And at what point are you uh, doing a disservice to your readers, um, either by not getting access to that information or by shading the reality of what you're, you're actually covering? 
Mark Wolverton, can you talk about some of the uh, criticism of Lawrence in recent years for his coverage of the uh, nuclear weapons program? Yeah, there, there's been um, some of it has dealt with these issues that Seth was just discussing. Um, back in uh, 2004, 2005, the uh, journalists Amy, Amy and David Goodman from Democracy Now! Uh, had written an article and were, were kind of castigating the Pulitzer Committee for and, and calling for the revocation of Lawrence's 1946 Pulitzer Prize. He won two of them, one in 36 and one in 46, for his, for his coverage of Nagasaki and the atomic bomb. And they, they were doing this because they were saying, basically accusing him of being a propagandist and saying that he, and by extension the New York Times, had participated in essentially a cover-up of um, the dangers of radiation and, and, kind of, and, and also discounting the, the casualties of Nagasaki and the effect of, on the Japanese people. I think they, those are rather partisan and unfair criticisms. And I, I think partly for the reason, one, one aspect that Seth mentioned was Lawrence was the only one who had this access at the time. And he was very aware of that. That's one reason that he agreed to take the job, aside from his great interest in the subject. But he was really, as Seth said, without him there at Trinity Nagasaki, we would not have the journalistic viewpoint that we now have. And for Lawrence, his viewpoint was, and he, he was, as I said, he was an immigrant. He lost his family to the Nazis and, and, to, the, and to the Russians. He was American through and through in the way that I think only a, a naturalized citizen can be. Um, and he saw this, at, at that time he was in his middle 50s. He'd already been a veteran in World War I. He saw this as a way to serve his country again in a time of national emergency in, in wartime. So that for that, I think, kind of mitigated any considerations of conflict of interest and so forth. He thought this was really his a patriotic duty in a way to do this job. So, so, and the other aspect of the Goodman criticisms and others is that they're kind of looking at this back from the from our perspective, um, in, in retrospect, at a, a, what we know now as opposed to what was known then, and in those immediately after the war, the dangers of radiation and fallout were still quite uncertain. Um, we knew that there was danger, of course, but a lot of the reports that were coming out of, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki from Japan were discounted at that time as just enemy propaganda, which, considering the nature of the times, was quite a reasonable assumption, even if it was untrue, and it was actually partly true. So yeah, there, so there are many, many facets to this, and it's, it's an unusual situation in a way that perhaps journalists today um, in, in a situation where they're embedded in a war zone or whatever, are not facing. And that's something I think we have to think about in, the, in this instance. I think one thing that, that is, is very crucial to highlight is, unlike other times Pulitzer winners, uh, explicitly Walter Durante, whose, uh, whose coverage of the, the, the Stalin famines in the Ukraine um, in the 30s, it, it was actually shown that he covered up the information about the famines and so was knowingly reporting false information. Lawrence did not witness the effects of radiation poisoning. He was not on the ground in Japan. So there 
as far as I know, has never been an accusation that there was information that he knew and he purposefully withheld it because he thought it would put something in a negative or a positive light. Today, I think th that's something that is is really, really crucial to remember here. His reporting might seem, by our standards now, to be incredibly credulous, uh, but this was a time in which all of this was new. Um, and it's you, you can debate whether he should have been more skeptical, but but I don't think there is debate that that he had information that he knew uh, was going to put this project in a negative light and withheld it. The story of Atomic Bill Lawrence at the New York Times has a really uh, kind of remarkable coda. Uh, it takes place more than a decade after the Nagasaki mission, um, and it changed the way he thought about nuclear weapons. And I think uh, you might argue that it changed the way a lot of people thought about them. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, one thing about Lawrence is that even before the war, when he was writing his first articles, before he even joined the Manhattan Project, was writing his articles, he was worried about, more than anything else, about Hitler getting the bomb. Um, when he actually saw atomic bombs for himself, he was horrified at, at the destruction and their power. Um, immediately after the war, he was very much in favor of the international efforts that were then uh, that were then going on to try to control atomic energy. There was uh, the Atchison-Lilienthal plan and several others. Um, and then after, in 1946, he witnessed the bikini atomic tests in the Pacific, the first test after World War II. And that convinced him even further that we have to get the atomic bomb under control or civilization is doomed. His attitudes began to change, I think, in 1950 with Korea, the Korean War. Um, that's when he began to see that communism, which he had always known was a danger, but he began to feel a bit more threatened by it, or, or that America had to, had to be strong and do something about it. And atomic bombs were some way, were a way of doing that. So we had to stay strong to counter this communist aggression. And I think it really developed, as I say in, in the story. It kind of developed slowly with him, but then when he finally, he saw his first hydrogen bomb in 1956, the Cherokee test, and that's when he, as he describes in his book, Men and Atoms, he sort of had this epiphany that you know, this, it's this vast power, that's, it's this world-covering this world -covering umbrella that can, that can shield us from, from being destroyed by our rivals, the Soviet Union. And, and another, another factor in this is that he had always, there had always been a, sort of a dichotomy between his attitudes toward atomic weapons and his, his attitudes toward atomic energy. Um, he was one of the first to extol the virtues of nuclear energy, nuclear power, um, our friend the atom, that, that kind of thing. And, and after, especially after this sort of epiphany in 1956, he, be, he began in his coverage to, to emphasize that a bit more, that we need, we need the bomb because we need to defend ourselves, we need to preserve civilization, this is our best tool, but we can also divert it to more peaceful, constructive uses with atomic energy and, and other purposes. So it's, it, it is this strange dichotomy in his, both his public attitudes and I think probably his personal attitudes as well. Seth and Mark, um, you both pointed out atomic Bill Lawrence, William Lawrence worked in a much different era from our era today. Are there any lessons you think that we can learn and apply today? I think there are several. I think one of them is, the first one that occurs to me is just, is just 
the dangers of judging history by present standards as the people who are calling for for, for the revocation of his Pulitzer Prize and so forth are doing. Um, one thing that Arthur Gelb told me is at that time, he was considered a hero. I mean, he had done something that no other journalist had done. He did something necessary. He did, he did a job and he did it well. And, and he was not really, at least in his mind, involved in covering up anything or being a propagandist. Um, the other lesson, and I think for today, for journalists today, is I, I think Lawrence also, he, he was someone who became, who was very enthusiastic, very passionate about what he did and the subjects that he became interested in, to the point where I think he sometimes lost his own perspective of things and the downsides. And I think that happened with his view on atomic weapons. He let himself be dazzled by them a bit too much, I think. And and I think also in a way he, he was disillusioned by the fact that the this age of nuclear peace and plenty that he had envisioned never really came about, which is something else. And, and that grew from his own, his own perspective, his own, his own particular um, uh, viewpoints about the bomb. And, and I think now that today, as science journalists, we, we need to, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the wonder of things and how cool things are and the promise of things while perhaps disregarding the negative aspects, the downside, the, the dark side, if you will, of them, uh, which is something that I think Lawrence did. Uh, and he, I think he provides an example of how, of what happens when, when that you do that too much. Seth, what do you think? Disillusioning tale or inspiring one? I mean, I, I think that um, it underscores a very interesting and important tension that science journalists face today. And it's a tension that I think we face today in a way that's very different from what science journalists faced in the in the 40s and 50s, in that we need to decide whether, as Mark said, we're going to sort of serve as um, science supporters and, and, and cheerleaders or be more dispassionate. And I don't think that the answer there is always as clear as it might seem on first blush, because science itself is contested uh, in a way that it never has been. Not whether this research is more important than that research, but whether the core values of science, whether science is a tool that we can use to illustrate and illuminate um, reality. And uh, I think it, it, it is, it's paramount on us as science journalists to be aware of the environment in which we're living. There are times when there are things that are presented sometimes in the press as a conflict when it's really not a conflict, when it's not a scientific debate. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't acknowledge that something is not a debate out of fear of being seen as cheerleaders. Uh, but it's our job actually to say, look, there is, here's the evidence. There's not evidence on this opposing side. And, and that's what it is. There might be a cultural debate, but there's not a scientific debate. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about this fascinating tale from the dawn of the atomic age. Uh, Mark Wolverton is a science writer, author, and playwright. 
whose most recent book is A Life in Twilight, The Final Years of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, he was a night science journalism fellow here at MIT in 2016-17. Uh, Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus and Hard News, 21 Brutal Months at the New York Times and How They Changed the American Media. Uh, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing here at MIT. Seth and Mark, many thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. How do you keep up to date with the latest science news? Do you get it from newspapers, online articles, or do you just allow it to wash across your social media feed? Well, a new grassroots initiative is starting to spring up around the world and is becoming a popular part of science communication. Dr. Andy Stapleton investigates. It's a cold and rainy Tuesday night in Adelaide, Australia, and I'm heading to the pub on the outskirts of the city to meet with Katerina Richter. This isn't a Tinder date, and I'm not going to see a band. This is something a little out of the ordinary for the pub environment. I enter through old wooden doors and make my way down a beer-soaked corridor to a large back room full of people. There, on the stage, projected onto a big white screen, is the event's name, A Pint of Science. I work my way through the crowd to find Katerina so she can tell me a little bit more about what I've gotten myself in for. Pint of Science is a scientific festival that was founded in 2012 um, in London. And uh, the two founders, they were scientists themselves and they had the great idea to bring science to the pub and thereby foster science communication with the, with the general public. The question that came to mind is, why a pub? There are other more obvious spaces for talking about science. I'm thinking public lectures and outreach activities. Is a pub really the best place to talk about science? Katerina says that hosting science festivals in a pub brings a different dynamic to science communication. The pub environment is certainly very relaxed, you know, gives space for better uh, discussions and a pint of beer helps as well to loosen up. With a beer in hand, presumably to help the science flow, and the sound of rain on the roof, the event begins. Welcome to Pint of Science, Pint of Science 2017. Dr. Bryony Forbes is more at home in the lab or at the front of a lecture hall, but tonight she's on stage in front of a hundred people calling on a set of different skills to talk about science. A talk that unfortunately I've been asked not to record. Dr. Forbes is a professor at Flinders University and she's conducting research on insulin and insulin-like growth factors in diabetes and cancer. Tonight, she can't rely solely on PowerPoint and the threat of an exam at the end to keep the audience's attention. She must take a different approach and she's brought a bag of tricks to keep things interesting. Her talk is punctuated by noisily delving into her bag to pull out cone snail shells to pass around the audience. Her presentation lacks the formal tone so many students loathe about lectures, and as a result, people are participating. They're asking questions. Afterwards, 
Dr. Forbes tells me she's got as much out of a pint of science as the audience did. It really makes us think about the problems in a way that really translate and, and if we don't talk to the public then we don't know what the real needs are of, of the public as well so we get stuff back we get in ideas and so on back as well it's not easy for scientists to put themselves out there and the added benefit of holding these events at the pub is the ability to gain a little bit of dutch courage before venturing into the spotlight well right now i'm on my second that's justin chalker he's a chemist from flinders university and he runs a lab that makes new molecules to improve human health and protect the environment. He's confident that the pub is the perfect environment to speak to the general public. Well, lecture halls are terribly boring and oppressive, and the pub is the, the opposite experience. It's a venue where, uh, it's a public venue, right? It is, it is the pub, and people can come and exchange ideas, have a beer, relax, and, and experience and talk about science in a very non-imposing way. While getting up in front of a load of people in a pub may be out of the comfort zone of many scientists, it's vital for the future of science funding too. The general consensus is that the era of outreach being optional for scientists is over because without public support, how can we convince politicians not to cut public spending on research? It appears that many scientists have gotten the message, but are they reaching out to the right people? A 2012 study from Warwick and Cambridge University in the UK found that while science festivals are designed to expand the public's interest in science, this genre of science communication appeals mainly to a select demographic. It found that most attendees at an event like A Pint of Science already support scientific research. It's essentially preaching to the choir. And that made sense. As I took my microphone around the crowd, guess what? Everyone I spoke to was a scientist. I am a medical student. I'm doing my PhD in engineering. Um, and I'm doing a PhD in genetics. This realisation is bittersweet for me. I'm glad that so many of my scientist colleagues have moved outside their comfort zone in attempt to communicate science to the public. But they haven't quite moved far enough. We've got to market events like A Pint of Science to a non-scientist audience. Not just move the presentations from a scientific conference to the pub. Fortunately, there's plenty of other options to combine science with things people love. Sport and science go very well together. Or well, maybe maybe science science and yoga. Science and cheese. They need to add cheese to this. Well, food, food is always good as well. So if we have a pub with good food, who knows where we'll end up. For Undark, I'm Andy Stapleton. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. Undark.